hello everybody welcome to this welcome to this video this is the deadly analysis podcast if you're new to our podcast we take great horror movies and we dissect them through the lens of philosophy and tonight oh boy i think this is a movie that we all pretty much enjoy it is dr sleep a 2019 film starring ewan mcgregor and rebecca ferguson and directed by Mike Flanagan, who is fast becoming a master of horror. It is a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's horror masterpiece, 1980's The Shining. And while the film somehow threads the needle and functions as a sequel to both the book and the film, two radically different works of art, we'll be focusing primarily on the film. So if we talk about a plot hole in the movies that's explained in the books, then they should have put that shit in the movie. After a brief section that basically serves as an epilogue to The Shining, Dr. Sleep picks up Dan Torrance in his adult life. Like his father, Dan is an alcoholic prone to violence and after a drink-inspired negligent evening results in the death of a young woman, he moves away to start a new life. Meanwhile, the film's villains are led by Rose the Hat, a mysterious group who feed on people who shine. They light upon the th film's third main character, Abra, a young girl who shines and befriends Dan in an effort to defend against Rose's attacks. So join us as we try and tease out these this film's themes, discuss Stephen King, uh, Stephen King's ethics, and understand some of the film's complex racial undertones. So let's begin with Dr. Sleep's position as a sequel. Let's talk about the genre. Let's talk about, let's first uh, ask each of our, our, our podcasters, Noah, Shayra, and Ben, what makes a great sequel? And uh, how do you think uh, Dr. Sleep stacks up? Well, first off, I think I speak for everybody, especially Jim, when I say that this movie is just way better than The Shining. I mean, we all clearly agree that The Shining was not a good movie and this is way better, right? Like, that's not controversial, right? Like, we're, that's okay, extremely good. controversial. And, is it? Uh, I, would, I, I would be happy to, uh, to prove you wrong, but I think that uh, all of that is done in our Shining video, also available on the channel. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. Black Phillips still says it's a shitty film. Okay, all right. Well, you know what? We'll move. We'll move on. You know, I so I I think what makes a a perfect sequel, especially if the first movie is like really well done, is just taking the right combinations of elements that made the first film what it is, and just sprinkling them, like intelligently sprinkling them into a sequel that already kind of feels like its own thing, right? So I feel like the downfall of the horror sequel is just trying to redo the magic of the first film. So some examples that come to mind when I say that are movies like Jeepers Creepers uh, saw to a certain extent The Conjuring there's a bunch of them right these films all have sequels that immediate sequels I should say I should say that distinctly feel like they're trying to redo the magic of the first movie and we can contrast those movies however with movies uh, some that we've actually done in this podcast for example Creep or uh, 28 Days Later, maybe, right? Like both of those movies have sequels that at least in my mind take the formula of what made the first successful and kind of only slowly inject them into the veins of a movie that already sort of feels standalone. And I think, I, I actually think Dr. Sleep may be one of the best examples of this. Like as a sequel to me, it's up there with like 
Aliens or Scream 2 or Terminator 2 Judgment Day, like purely as a sequel. This movie, I think, takes the right combination of things from the first film and then applies it to what's kind of already a unique world on its own. So, for example, it takes the concept of, you know, the ability to shine uh, that's in The Shining and it uses it as a vehicle to explore familial trauma, redemption, right? And that's largely what the story is about. To, to me, when I watch Doctor Sleep, I get familial trauma, addiction, redemption, those sorts of things first. And I think the trick in making a horror sequel is to make the movie feel like its own thing and use elements of the original to kind of supplement it. I think that's what this movie did. But in terms of how it stacks up, I mean, I thought this movie was phenomenal. I mean, both as a sequel to The Shining and on its own right. I completely agree with all of that. I would, I would have to say that one thing that I would add to that, I think, is that if you do a really, really good sequel, it can kind of make up for the weaknesses of the original. And I know that, of course, we're not going into the, the books, um, all of that. I haven't read the books, so I wouldn't be able to talk about them anyway. Um, but what I really liked about Dr. Sleep is that it actually took the time to, to write out some dialogue that explained why Dr. Sleep is a sequel in the first place. Um, I don't think it was readily apparent in the, uh, the original film that the, the house was this sort of entity... Um, much like Rose and her uh, gang or whatever, that could absorb the shine from people and take in that energy. Um, like I, it really wasn't clear to me that that was the case, but I think The Shining becomes a much more interesting movie because Ewan McGregor took like a couple of minutes to explain his experiences and what was actually going on there. So I think that's something that the sequel did really well is that it actually ended up supplementing the original and making it a better work. I have watched a lot of older Stephen King movies with my daughter, and she says they're pretty corny. I think that's kind of a fair assessment <laughs> of of Stephen King's older stuff that came out. Some of it's really good, but there's a lot of that cornball, like, made-for-TV miniseries kind of uh, wonkiness to some of them. So when I went... So when corny, I watched, corny. Yeah, corny, I yeah. thought you said horny, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, no. um, what? Oh. <laughs> Shayra has only seen the porn remakes of these Stephen King films. Yeah, Pet Cemetery is a really horny. What? No. No. Okay. I guess. Whatever. Don't kink shame, Jim. Don't kink shame. That's all I'm saying. Some people that are into Pennywise, uh, played by Tim Curry. I'm not gonna kink shame them. Um, But so she thought some of the the earlier works were kind of corny and how they were made. So she's been more interested in the newer Stephen King films. And when I tried to watch The Shining, she was uninterested because of other Stephen King films we had watched. She didn't know that Kubrick's was a little bit different than some of the made-for-TV stuff. So she had really no background of The Shining and just watched this, kind of just going with this, and it worked out just fine. There was not really much explanation needed. It, It... actually works on its own. It absolutely works on its own. And um, one of the things that we were discussing when we were watching it is the fact that this film fits really well with the other Stephen King worlds where you could even see how all of their stuff could line up. It, it actually intersects and it's like a puzzle piece in with all of the Stephen King universe. It, it's like a glue almost to some of the storyline. Um, it, it almost feels like The Shining was incomplete until now because of some of the revelations. So I I almost venture to say, don't watch just The Shining anymore. Please watch both so that you can get an understanding of this universe a little bit better. Stephen King was was uh, 
famously um, disappointed with Kubrick's original uh, film um, for reasons that we won't necessarily get into and that we've sort of gotten into on the uh, on the Shining podcast. But uh, this film, Dr. Sleep, serves as a fantastic sequel to both the the book and the film. So I think that it somehow is able to serve both of those masters, those who who found the book to be a more compelling version of The Shining and those who found the, the movie to be a more compelling version of The Shining. And, and of course, those who like both. So Dr. Sleep sort of, as I said in the introduction, kind of threads that needle. But let's, um, let's sort of pick up on what I think is the central thesis of this film. And, and that is like, you know, Noah, you were talking about redemption and you were talking about familial trauma. And I think that that's at the heart of Dr. Sleep uh, as well. Like it is it is about like who pays for the sins of the father. The children do who plays who pays for Jack's um, alcoholism and in all of Jack's foibles. It's Dan. Um, and this is throughout all of the Dan Torrance uh, plot points. Dan's life is all about running, avoiding the repetition of his father's behavior. And, um, you know, this is seen in other films like Running on Empty, Sidney Lumet's great film, um, Long Day's Journey Tonight, also Sidney Lumet. And it's the, the theme of children inheriting their parents' pain. Um, so why, why do you think that this is such a recurrent theme in film and what how do you think dr sleep pulls off um inheriting uh children uh children inheriting their parents pain uh how do you think it pulls that theme off yeah so so follow me here right um the scariest thing about the film hereditary not that i'm a fan of hereditary at all or anything Ari Aster makes. Uh, the I scariest think you thing need to like explain that because I don't know if they'll if everybody can see that you're very small. Oh, on the oh, oh, this is a love story. I'm shipping Peter and Danny. Like this is Danny and Peter from Midsommar and Hereditary. Um, and I didn't make this, so I'm not the only one who feels that way. I'm not weird. Anyway, so uh, I think the the scariest thing about the movie Hereditary. Um, it's not the cult. It's not payment, right? We covered all this in our podcast. It wasn't watching like your sister be decapitated if you're Peter. It's not the mom saying she wished she never had you as a son. The scariest thing about the film Hereditary was that it reminded you that you're never really your own thing, right? That you're the result of a broad array of decisions made by other people in situations that are completely outside of your control. You have the illusion of true autonomy as a son or a daughter. You are in effect a house built upon a house, built upon a house. Now, that fact is explored very well in Dr. Sleep. And I think the most explicit example of this, I'm just going to go straight to like the point of this, was when Danny's at the same bar at the Overlook Hotel that his father was in the Shining film. Um, you know, the struggle not to follow in the sins of the father is rather overtly presented in that scene, but also I think explored with a great amount of care. You know, we use the phrase all of the time, like we'll say things as like the ghosts of our past, right? Um, and in this movie, it presents those ghosts as like real metaphysical things. They're representative, but they're also right there in your face, as it were. This is something that is very heavy in Mike Flanagan's work um, from The Haunting of Hill House. I mean, he has a lot. First off, like half the people from Haunting of Hill House, Gerald's Game, they were like all kind of mashed in this, right? 
Um, but that's that's kind of his. I'm, I'm noticing that's something like making ghosts manifest seems to be something that this guy digs and likes to take hold of projects that he likes to to sign on to. Um, he look, also I, likes to scrape hand skin. Oh, hands! <laughs> right? Were you thinking of Gerald's game during that scene yeah. when Rose the Hat's hand comes off? The first thing I'm like, dude, you did Gerald's game. Why do I got to see this again? This is horrific. Gross, man. That was so nasty. Yeah, you're right. Ugh. Um, anyway, uh, so, so, you know, there, there's this aura of, of ghosts in your face, familial trauma. They're like metaphysical in your face, real things. Right. So that scene really hit me. I mean, look, my, uh, my dad was a violent alcoholic, much like Jack Torrance. He died when I was 16, as opposed to well, I forget, was like six, I think when Danny dies, five or six. Um, I don't know yeah, if I would have had, I don't know if I would have had the same strength that Danny had, like at that moment in the overlook, like to say no to like the temptations of the apparition and, and also to be like forgiving in the midst of it is very powerful. It's also very painful. I mean, this is a movie about like overcoming the pain and the trauma inflicted upon you by your parent. And if that's a world in which you live, this is a movie that's going to do something for you. It's either going to do something for you or do something to you. Um, and I think this film does a good job of showing us Danny at his lowest, Dan at his lowest, you know, the one night stand with the woman that has a child. And it shows us Dan um, at his best, right? Looking his father in the face and saying, no, no more. So I think this movie carries the ups and downs, the baggage of trauma and addiction quite well, and it connects them to elements of the first film um, in a way that's that's uh, that's not overpowering. So I'll leave it at that. So there's one thing I want to call there, and I, I, um, I really think there's kind of an interesting sort of nuance that comes out when you sort of start to unpack the the time at which uh, Danny is able to kind of like overcome those demons and sort of like um, resist uh, the call of liquor offered by his father or whatever, that whole thing. Um, when you really sort of start to look at that, I think there's a very specific reason why he was able to do that. And I think it's made very explicit that the example that he um, instead wants to be able to set is more like the man that like guided him as opposed to his father who was representing something totally different, right? So when we think about the sins of the past or the sins of our, our uh, parents or whatever being passed on to the children, I think the real point here is that I, that can either be negative or positive. So obviously the hotel is filled with all of these demons and there's all that stuff. And then there's the narrative around Danny sort of overcoming alcoholism, but Abra doesn't really have that. She has really supportive parents. And then she also has Danny to be able to help guide her. And I think because Danny sort of, discovered that meaning and that that um that positive thing that he could do with his power um which was of course building on the fact that he was able to go in and, and find this job after you know coming out and start going through um alcoholics anonymous and that was all kind of like developing around his ability to um help these old people go to sleep or to die peacefully right so i mean he starts using his power for good he's able to overcome his alcoholism he finds an even greater meaning in helping somebody else that has the shining also um and that i think leads to his ultimate resolution of finally being able to put all of that to rest but yeah i mean i think that really comes back from that part where you see there the reason he's able to do that is because of that sort of like that twofold um uh, potential of impact of, of passing something on to the future, right? It can be either positive or negative. Uh, and he chose positive because he found a greater meaning in doing something for good. Um, yeah. 
think also community too. I think he found sort of he he found sort of a, a a way to sort of battle the ghosts through community, through AA or whatever, and have you. And just I think also finding um, finding kindness in the eyes of others. You know, uh, his mentor and things like that. I think there's something there too about community and not just self isolating and not just being alone during it. I think that was an important part that struck me too. So there's another family in this film. There's the family that decided to create themselves together uh, around Rose. Um, they were a family unit. They worked and functioned as a family unit, but a chosen family unit. And even when some of them die, I mean, there's absolute horror and pain that is suffered from those deaths. Um, and, and you can tell that they really cared about each other. When uh, the first one of them, I forgot what it's called when they, the way they die, um, what they called it, but um, when he was going through that, she was talking about they built statues to you. You saw, you know, the gladiators in Rome. You've lived a great life. People feared you. You were an amazing per like. There's clearly love and affection, and they haven't just been a family for as long as we normally have families. They've been family for hundreds, possibly thousands of years. That's a really big deal, um, and. It kind of gave me that like vampire like family kind of vibe, you know, but um, it's interesting. They tried to show how they brought people into that family. There wasn't a lot of them, but they brought someone in recently, the snake bite chick, who is my now worst nightmare far more than Pennywise. Holy fuck, that bitch is scary. I know she's a, supposed to be a cute little 15 year old, but the fact that she could just tell you to do something and you do it. Ah, so I could see why they would want someone that powerful to work with them. Um, but it's, it does definitely felt like that was a big family unit. And I, I don't know, could you call them like a, a, a good family unit? I mean, I guess on the outside, if they weren't trying to murder children to, you know, get food maybe, but as far as their links and their connections with each other, they seemed like actually not toxic towards one another besides the fact that they're monsters. <laughs> That's what makes them a compelling antagonist, I think, right? It's like you actually kind of, I think at some point, start to feel a little bit of empathy for them and really kind of like make that connection and sort of see what they're really like when they're not being monsters, right? I mean, I think uh, there's there's definitely a lot of interesting sort of complexity in that network of relationships and in our um, uh, main pro uh, antagonist, Rose, as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that that connects to, but it, it carries over uh, from this you know, who pays for the sins of the father, the children, who pays for the burdens of the past, the young. And this is seen in the old literally eating the young, the thousand-year-olds who are literally sucking the essence out of children. And it's it reminds me of sort of this idea that, you know, the the older generations always fuck up the world and then pass it on to the younger generations. It's, it's your turn to fix this shit. And, uh, and that's, that's just, that's a constantly growing cycle of, you know, we are trying to fix the, uh, the problems that our parents created and our parents were trying to fix the problems that, that they created and on and on and on. And it just becomes this sort of network, this cycle, as Noah, you were talking about earlier, of how you are a house that was built upon another house. And that without... And, and, and the, the scary thing about Dr. Sleep's antagonists is that the antagonists are the ones that are sort of inverting that... Um, that structure and saying that, and it's the old that's literally feeding on the young in order to 
in order to uh, to maintain who they are. And it, it, it like there's the myth of progress that we are supposed we as the younger generation are supposed to fix the the sins of our parents. The, and and so we we generally progress because the next generation fixes and the next generation on and on and on and so that's it's sort of this this idea that things continually get better as the newer generations um as the as the younger generations fix the problems of the past but i think what's interesting about the antagonists in this film is that they are they're feeding on the young in order to maintain um, the the society and the polity that they have created for themselves. Um, it's an inversion of that myth of progress. Does that make sense? Am well, I making pro- sense here? It's not really a myth, though, is it? I mean, like, both in the real world and in the, in the movie, I think we see a little bit of both going on. And I think by all metrics, you know, obviously, if you watch the news and, and all of this stuff and really kind of like get caught up in the day to day, I mean, it seems like things are worse than ever. But by all measures of global progress, things are constantly getting better. So it clearly it can't be the case that every previous generation is doing things worse because they, we are moving forward. I think every this, new generation is is doing things worse than uh, right. I mean, like yes, yeah. Right. I mean, so like it, it's our job to fix those mistakes. But the only way that we're passing on mistakes to the future generation is either by making new mistakes or like fixing the old mistakes and making some of our own, or like not fixing them, or you know whatever it is. But I mean, in reality, there still seems to be this net positive impact over time. And I also think that this movie takes a very hopeful turn because it shows that either it can be negative, either previous generations can eat up and consume the future with no regard for the future generations or they can offer progress and 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 sort of like a more hopeful kind of like building situation where you actually have a foundation on which to build a house on which you can build another house and so on and so forth it can sure. be either one um and that's so, i think kind of like a kind of interesting twist on that is that it does become so hopeful at the end even if, even if it is a bit nihilistic uh i think it is so in a very hopeful way i i'd push back on the reason I call it the myth of progress is because I think that the ills of previous generations do not go away. They just change. However, I mean, I don't think that calling those other things, um, I, you know, whatever they, I mean, we, we really shouldn't downplay the fact that we are eliminating diseases and we are able to communicate with people all over the globe more freely than we ever have. And I think that kind of like open communication and sort of like that technological progress allows for change of those societal type things. And I think uh, it's slow um, with regards to the the type of uh, change that you're talking about. Sure, I mean, things have transformed. They're a little different. Things are still there. But I think our awareness of them and our ability to remember those things has increased quite a bit. Um, sure. In fact, I would definitely argue in most political arguments, you know, we see these same arguments being used over and over again in every single election, every single time by both political parties that are prominent in the United States. Um, but now... Because we're able to see that over time and everyone can be aware of it by the fact that all of it's recorded on video and audio and you just have to go look it up on Google, um, it's a little bit harder to trick people and that's definitely a good thing. Now, of course, you can also think about like the conspiracy theory stuff and there's two sides to that as well. But again, you know, I think there is that hopeful thread there that it might not be perfect progress all at once, but we have the tools to keep moving forward and those things do change over time. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right that the, to to try to put this back onto the film because we did kind of tangent into uh, into whether or not humankind progresses in any way. This film does make the argument that it does that that the uh, who carries the burdens of the past Abra does, and she seems much more capable of of bearing those burdens than than young Dan was. 
than Danny was as a as a child, and she has a much more supportive background um, and and a much more supportive family unit that's that's helping her along that all, along that path. Um, so, do you guys uh, know Ashera? Do you want to dive in on this? Do you think progress is a thing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, now that I know this is Googleable, no, I'm just kidding. Um, well, all I want to say is uh, I had to like I had to reject Steven Pinker's request to join this hangout like five times um, during your conversation between Jim and Ben. I was like, Steven Pinker, why is he trying to join? Why, yeah, damn it! And I kept, yeah, I was like, reject. No, we don't want to hear your data, bastard. Things are terrible. The end. No, uh, yeah, no, I, um, well, back to, so, so the original question really was about like, like, uh, Rose the Hat and sort of the, the, the past. And I mean, really, we're just shitting all over the boomers, I felt like at a certain point. But no, like people in the past and all the, that last generation always saying, well, you know, this one and, you know, our forefathers and all that shit. So, so let me, let me kind of take a step back and think about it this way. Like, first off, I, let me just say, I would join any cult that Rose the Hat starts. Like, I would be in it in a minute. I, one of the most beautiful human beings I've ever seen with my eyes is, is Rose the Hat. That actress just every – good lord. But anyway, that doesn't matter. I'm just saying I would join the cult. I'd, I'd sign up. I got no skills. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm just saying. If she wears a hat, that's it. Like, I, I'm, I'm just – I'm yours. I don't know, like, what I would just be – she wouldn't even have to be a pusher. She just puts the hat on. She's already a pusher for, for Noah. Um. But I think that her and the True Knot, her group, they represent kind of like what's worst about our forefathers, right? The selfishness, the greed, the avarice, those things. Um, they're like that crazy grandpa who ruins Thanksgiving dinner by talking about how the youth are destroying the moral fabric in America and how, you know, they used to go walk to school a million miles every day uphill in snow, right? It's that sort of like neurotic anger that comes with age. And I think it's spotlighted onto the younger generation as like they're the problem, right? So it's a way of holding on to the past, clinging to the status quo. And that's what I feel like the knot is, the true knot. They want to remain. They want to persist. And in fact, they want to remain so deeply that they eat the youth, right? Like quite literally. It's 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 Saturn just devouring the young, right? And so the obvious metaphor and that you guys have hit on is that, you know, the youth I mean, like the youth have to sort of untie the knot. That's why it's a knot, right? They have to like fix the damage that's been done by the prior generation. And that metaphor, I think, and it's really important to maybe think about it this way, is that that metaphor exists on the level generationally, like on the level of the generation, but also individually on the level of you and I and the sins of our parents in the house upon a house. Right. So there's a real like multi-level metaphor, I think, going on in this movie. But I caught those same things, too, about the sins of our past collectively and the sins of our past sort of internally within the family unit. One of the things that was really interesting about Abra is that she had a lot of um, positivity, a lot of hope. Even when she's going through dark stuff, she's like somehow exuberant and happy, like even when she had her mind almost broken in two. She was just like... I did it! I got her! I looked at her head! I did it! He's like, oh my god, what have you done? She's like, yay! Like, she just has a real positivity about what she's doing. But one of the one of the other interesting aspects is that her main power is to form illusions. Um, and to make illusions for people. And um, one of the things that happens with the conflict of young people and old people is uh, old people will say stuff like, uh, you are too idealistic. I used to have hope when I was your age, and I learned to say fuck you, hope. And it's like, well, but I haven't, so go fuck yourself. <laughs> and that's the conflict between old and young. I mean, that's a very simplified version of it. But yeah, 
So I think it's very interesting that she has all this hope. She creates these worlds. She, she has this idea of how she can make it better. She immediately came up with a plan to help somebody when he was like, just forget about this. Just forget any of this ever happened. Stifle yourself, bottle it in. <laughs> it's like the worst advice, honestly, ever to give anybody. Um, but uh, she was like, okay, well, whatever. I'm going to do my thing anyway. While we're talking about Abra, I just want to point out a, an Easter egg that was really exciting for me as an anime nerd. Um, you notice in her room, she has a whole bunch of Ruby posters and dolls and figurines and stuff. Um, what's really cool, if you know anything about that anime, is the character she attached herself to, Emerald, has the ability to create illusions. And so she found character in an anime that, um, that symbolized herself. She could see herself in a, in a character in an anime. And uh, also the actress is a huge fan of Ruby as well, so that worked. So <laughs> they just added elements of that. And she got to go and hang out with people who made Ruby and get a bunch of free shit because of uh, her room for the movie. Chellis. <sighs> That's awesome. Yeah. Nerd, nerdy, nerdy girl. Love it. <laughs> I think Abra also probably watched Gerald's game. It's the only, th- the only way I can make sense of that hand thing. It's just not, hasn't left me since you said it. Yeah. So let's continue talking about, about Abra and the last, one of the last moments between Dan and, and Abra is, uh, he says, you shine on Abra stone. And I, I think that it's important to figure that, like, to, to contextualize this as this is said to a young African-American girl, uh, and often African-Americans are told by light white society to be less than they are, to, to hide who they are. And it seems significant that Dan is saying this to her as though it's an empowerment for and, and about black people's position in society. Do you think that this is uh, part of what is being promoted by, by Dr. Sleep, or am I just uh, reading this through the lens of the, uh, the news that I continually, continually watch? You white liberal elite, how dare you? Um, no, I, I guess I'll, I'll start. I have a, I, I think I have a different perspective than my other two podcast mates, but we'll see. Um, I actually don't think that's what's happening at all. Uh, so I saw it a little differently and I saw it more on the level, like I contextualized everything as being on this, on the level of trauma. So think about it this way. Danny tells, uh, Abra to shine at the very end of the movie after her father's been killed. And after she's gone through, you know, the horrific trauma of being kidnapped, made to watch a child be tortured as though it was like in full fucking HD in front of her face, right? Remember, this is still a kid. And so all things being equal, you know, uh, Abra is, she survived this ordeal very much like Danny did. She lost her father, so did Danny. She sees ghosts. So does Danny. She's learned how to. She's learning how to live with The Shining. So does Danny. So the similarities between uh, her and Danny that uh, you know, like they're contextualized. His admonishment is contextualized. I think he has. Li- Danny has lived his life basically trying to hide The Shining, and he sees that now as a mistake at the end of this movie. Right? He wants Aver to 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 embrace The Shining and to not hide it, and that's why like the one of the very last scenes of the movie is 
um, Abra initially like lying to her mom, right. Um, about who she's talking to in the room. Remember that? Um, and then she rushes out into the room and, and tells her mom the truth, right? She's been talking to Danny she's, she's opening up about her shining or as uh, groundskeeper Willie from the Simpsons would call it the shinin, the shinin. Um, so, so, so hiding and, you know, hiding the shining and being less than you could be is the context, I think. So it's, it's about self-authenticity in the face of trauma. That's, I think, the level we should take that conversation at. Um, and being honest and truthful and open about yourself and your past is itself a form of empowerment. That's the empowerment I see. I mean, I like I could argue, let me let's reverse this a little to get this really like saucy, right? Throw some Taco Bell fucking fire sauce on this bitch. I don't like Taco Bell. I don't know where that came from. But I would argue that like having a white adult character, like a white adult male admonish a young black female about their future in the world is condescending and kind of tropey to me. Like it has a bit of that like white savior flavor in it to me. Like, I don't think I would like the movie that much if that's what I felt was like part of it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see race in this scene at all, to be completely honest with you. I feel like that has to be added. That's just my opinion. I mean, I see the idea there, but I think like the key context here is something, I don't want to say something deeper than race, but it's something else. And, it, and that's the confrontation of familial trauma as kind of a, as the key mechanism of empowerment, not so much race or admonition therein, but really the confrontation of familial trauma as the mech, as the central mechanism of empowerment. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense, but I, I'm also nervous about erasing race from any of these interactions as, as though we're sort of making race invisible in, in a situation in which race is, is part of Abra's lived experience. Now I take that the film doesn't do much with, uh, themes associated with, with race, um, and ethnicity in this, but I also can't ignore the fact that we've got a, a, a social uh, social situation in which uh, African Americans are continually um, uh, put down by a society, and that this could be a moment in which this is this is an empowerment. Um, but they're all but they're also they're also constantly admonished to do better by white people, and that's kind of what I felt like he was doing. In this movie, he was saying, you can you be, you can shine on. Don't be like me. I mean, the, the context was basically to me, like, don't be like me. Don't hide your shining. Don't hide that thing inside of you. It's that particular quote seemed to me to be heavily contextualized. Now, I see what you're saying, but I think that that plays, I guess, to me, that plays a larger role in indicating what that conversation is about and what should be extrapolated from that conversation. I, I don't want to, I mean, clearly I don't want to erase race. I mean, that's hard to say erase race from the conversation, but you know, if the film gives me anything like that to hang on to, I'm going to hang on to it and talk about it. But in this movie, it felt like it was something that is, I, I, again, straining to say deeper than race, but something that all races go through, which is familial conflict. I mean, trauma. Um, it's something that seems to be a little more writ large, I think. Something is a little more broad, but, you know, sure. I, yeah. Uh, can I bounce off of what you're saying, Noah? Uh, yeah. I think it is very much about ending cycles of abuse and ending cycles of how trauma can mess with you. Also, in the fact that at the end... Remember, like, at some point she was like, what's in those boxes? Because she goes in his head for a little bit. And he's like, don't worry about that. 
it's him holding in all of the demons and monsters and all of the horrible things of his childhood and his trauma. And at the end, he lets that out of the box and lets all of that thing exist um, in order to stop the problems that the main problem that was concerning them today. Yeah, and I think on that, I think on that level too, you know, in the context of old people saying really neurotic, angry shit to young people, this is the reversal of that. It's someone who has had a lived experience and is now saying something useful and good and functionally, you know, fantastic to someone who's like basically saying, here's something, not being angry with someone who's young, who has the same gifts and talents and, and qualities as them, but, but, but saying, here's, in my lived experience, here's what I did wrong. You have that same thing. Don't do what I did. And there's something, there's a reversal of that to, pe- you know, the people in the the true knot who want to take. Whereas Danny wants to give. Yeah. Right. Like, I, I'm not sure. Like, what I'm, what I'm kind of wondering is if there's a distinction here that we, we need to make between, like, what is original source material versus, like, what is the director's intent versus what is perhaps just sort of implied through the film. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I definitely see the implications or the what what is being implied in sort of like Jim's perspective here. Um, I also get kind of like what Noah's saying. And I really just sort of like to think it kind of depends on which level you're trying to analyze what you're able to dig out from that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the 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 best non-answer that I have, I suppose. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good non-answer, dude. Love it. I, I always, I never care about the director's intent and I never care about the original source material. I <laughs> piece of art that i'm analyzing that's in front of me uh the books don't matter and what you think about the thing that you just made doesn't matter what matters is what i can take from it period end of story um okay (laughs) speaking of the books don't matter let's talk about stephen king Uh, (laughs) uh so these are these are some quotes that i pulled out and i think that this sort of fits in shaver you were talking a little earlier about how this fits in with sort of Stephen King's one world in which all of his novels purportedly exist, um, <laughs> which the world has ended multiple times in his one world. Um, but the but let's let's sort of I think there's something uh, teasing out the ethics of Stephen King's uh, morality and Stephen King's work. Um, here's one line. This was said by Dick Halloran. Um, the world's a hungry place. The darkest things, the hungriest, and they'll eat up what shines. And later on, Dan says, uh, we're all dying. The world is one big hospice with fresh air. And King's ethics throughout his work is essentially that the world is evil and uncaring, uh, but there are sometimes good people within it who are willing to fight for the ones they love or willing to fight for the the good that they can have within a a sort of microcosm of, of the world at large. But basically, the entire planet is is a piece of shit. And it doesn't care about you. And the only thing that you can do is sort of save the ones or ones around you. And I think you see this in The Shining. You see this in Dr. Sleep. But one of the things that we talked about in the sort of early days of Deadly Analysis was sort of talking about how, uh, you know, Event Horizon was a, a Lovecraftian tale. And we were we were sort of looking through a lot of things like 
through the lens of, of, of Lovecraft. And I wonder if we can make the argument, advance the argument that King is a kind of proto-Lovecraftian uh, horror storyteller. Um, because that's those same type of uncaring world um, is 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 along the same lines in in both King and Lovecraft's work. You seem to uh, you seem to be skeptical about my racial allegory. You're skeptical about my about my Lovecraft allegory. Uh, what? Tell me. I am, damn it, Jim. Damn it. You're supposed to ask questions that we all agree with. Damn it. No, no. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, first off, I just want to say that um, as much as I like Dick Halloran's quote, there's a better quote by Taylor Swift, which is people throw rocks at things that shine. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I think real. you're referring to uh, Shine On Aberstone. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, I'm just saying. World's hungry place. Dark things are hungriest. They like to eat what shines. Taylor Swift did it better. All I'm saying. Um, no, I, I'm shaking my head because I think, so I think, so I love Lovecraft. I've read a lot of Lovecraft. I've read way more Lovecraft than Stephen King, uh, to be fair. But I think the distinction here that I would make between Lovecraft and King would be that that uh, King often portrays the world as evil and uncaring where I think Lovecraft paints the entire, the entire universe as indifferent to the struggles of man, right? So in other words, the world may be filled with assholes to King, but in, Love's, in Lovecraft's writing, the universe doesn't give two shits about our behavior to begin with, right? I, I think there's a like, let's fight for something. Uh, if there is a let's fight for something sort of vibe in Lovecraft's work, it's fighting for comprehension, right? Like a referent. It, no. Lovecraft, Lovecraft sort of puts you in the ocean and then makes you look for a raft. You know what I mean? Go ahead, Jira. So uh, I'm, I'm going to defend Jim a little bit on this because of uh, what he was saying about, um, you know, from this film about they want to eat the ones that, you know, shine, blah, blah, blah. Have you heard of the Langoliers? Oh, yeah. That like nine hour VHS, eight VHS thing. Yeah, Once I have it again, somewhere. Back to the courty mini yeah. stuff my daughter cannot handle. <laughs> but I mean, the, the essential concept is that all of our pastime is eaten up by the Langoliers and they discover that this is a real thing. Uh, that is a universe situation of monsters just eating all that is left behind in the past. Um, it, and in a way making you have to revisit your past and it, it fucks with your head too. And, and this is where Stephen King always gets to your familial issues. One of the main antagonist guys has to deal with his daddy issues and all that. But, uh, that is, that is kind of a Lovecraftian monster, like, well, monsters. I don't know. There are a whole bunch of little Pac-Man monster things that eat everything. But, uh, that seems a little on that level of the universe is out to, uh, you know, just they're indifferent to you. They're just out to, oh, we're cleaning up the mess of the past. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely an overlap in some in some aspects. I mean, I mean, King is is definitely a fan of Lovecraft and was um was uh, influenced heavily by Lovecraft. But I think King, I think the distinctions are heavier than the similarities. I think that that's true. But King typically works like with human beings and who they are as people as starting points and brings things out, brings out fears of. Um, th like the shitty things about humanity and what we do brought out as fears, where I th whereas I think Lovecraft sort of takes a very broader brush about the incomprehensible and what's out there. Like he, like Lovecraft focuses on a much broader psychology of what 
being like um of like what it is to be in an uncaring world as a mechanism for horror whereas i think king is maybe more hyper focused on distinct elements of human behavior typically in his books not always like langoliers is a good counterexample to that but i think that he can bounce king bounces stories off things that start with human beings first things that bring out issues of trauma and suffering whereas lovecraft is about more sort of universal incomprehensible things don't make sense it's hard to understand there's the sea and ocean and abyss of non-understanding that sort of undergirds our, our psychology as human beings. And so I see Lovecraft as much more broader and I see King as much more distinct. That's how I would make the distinction. But there definitely is some overlap there. In terms of moral and like normative frameworks of morality, ah, shit, I'd have to think about that more. Like I, I don't know on the realm of morality how they connect, but King and Lovecraft are very different. Like their writing style is very different. They may be connected in some ways, but they write very differently to me as far as I, as far as I look at it. Yeah, I'm not talking about their writing. I'm talking about the ethical framework of the universes that both of these people create and then right. in lovecraft the ethical framework is the universe doesn't give a shit about you um and and indifference and hate are two I, for me they're two sides of of the same coin like i you know that's, when that's i when i hated somebody and when somebody is indifferent to me it it functions the same way <laughs> Well, see, that's that's actually that's that's a really telling sign, and I think it, it really comes down to how we use the word evil, right? I mean, so I mean, you you can talk about like moral evil versus like natural evil, and I think what we're we're really talking about with Lovecraft could be thought of as natural evil, but I also think using the word evil to describe it is kind of a mistake because, again, like to Noah's point, the way he's describing it, it's not it's not really evil; it's just indifference. But I think it's easy to interpret indifference as evil when we have such a like an egocentric point of view of the world and of morality. And in fact, I think that's probably Probably a, a kind of um, after effect of, I don't know, like religious, certain religious frameworks to sort of put you at the center of the universe. And, you know, yeah, I mean, when you're in that position and you're not expecting the universe to actually be quite neutral to the existence of some random thing, um, yeah, maybe that does feel like evil, but that's certainly not how I think it's ought meant to be classified. So, all the down, all the down votes we're getting right now are Christians. That's it. I can see it right <laughs> now. Mark this moment. Bring them on. I appreciate the cops and the views. Can we do some D&D uh, alliances here? Like, uh, it, it, and or not alliances. Um, God, I can't even think of the word straight. But, like, if we were going to have Lovecraft universe versus Stephen King's, would you guys classify Lovecraft as being chaotic neutral and King's being chaotic evil? Is that is that what you guys are trying to argue? Hmm. How would I put that? In? That's a really interesting question. How would I put that in that framework? I feel like you can counter every answer, though. Probably. Like I want to, yeah. Like I want to say off the top of my head, Lovecraft would be, yeah, Lovecraft would be chaotic neutral. I don't think I King would be chaotic evil. I don't. Maybe Lovecraft's chaotic evil. Hmm. I think I would say that uh, Lovecraft probably in general would be like chaotic neutral, but with Stephen King, maybe it depends on the book. Like, I mean, if you think about mm. needful things, I would certainly classify needful things as de depicting like a, a lawful evil because there are certainly rules in place, but you're literally talking about the devil. But on the case mm -hmm. of like it, um, where you have more of like a cosmic threat, kind of like a cosmic evil, maybe that's more like neutral evil too. Um, I don't know. Let's talk about, uh, this film and and how you would classify King's morality vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, that 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 framework and how it sort of compares to Lovecraft. I think what I was trying to tease out was that there is a 
there is a sense about the world and the way the universe treats people that seems to go unquestioned by at least Dan and Dick, and I would suspect Rose and others, that the the you people are not entitled to be treated well by anything and in fact the the world itself will actively try to make you less than who you are um and i th at least that's that's what i get out of these two quotes now the idea that the entire planet is either indifferent to you or out to get you it's two it's two paths to the same point right they the the fact is is that the planet doesn't care about your happiness uh, I, I don't think so. Let me, so. let me stop you there. I don't think those are the same thing. Let me tell you why, right? Maybe this is our point of disagreement. Um, apathy towards you versus uh, evil towards you are very different. Evil is directed. To, evil is a sort of thing that wants net negative. Indifference is is pure neutrality. And it's. I think what Lovecraft teaches us is that really studying indifferent, indifference is its own kind of horror. Um, the masters of horror will always go to King and Barker and everyone, uh, will always go to evil as the, I mean, not always, but it's, it's traditionally the source of the horror is not an indifference, but a kind of, a kind of active evil. And I think the distinct difference between, let's say, love, the Lovecraftian view, the King view, um, indifference versus evil is that one is active and one is very passive. One can't be more passive. Um, and those function different, right? I mean, they, they may be, I mean, you could peg them as separate paths to the same point, but in, do indifference and evil always lead to the same point? Or, really? I, I don't think so. I think that evil I, seems more direct. Can I, can I make I one point? I think they do. I, can okay. I make one point? <clears throat> it, with this particular film, though, I don't think it was necessarily that the universe is indifference, per se. I mean, it, it, there is that form in there, but it's more so that the universe and the way that it seems to be saying our natural self is our shining fades as we age, meaning we become more and more indifferent. We become more and more empty. We become more and more bitter. We become, as we age, becoming an adult is taking away all your hopes and dreams and powers and abilities and uh, everything. Um, now, obviously there's still, Dan still had some powers in his older age, um, but he was very strong as a child, so that's probably why he had a lot left over. Um, but the the fact of the matter remains, it, they even said there's ideas that when these kids get older, it's gone. Or if you start giving them certain medications, it's gone. Um, so it's uh, not necessarily that it's an apathetic world, but a world that eventually makes us all apathetic, um, which is kind of horrifying if you think about it. When you have all these dreams and all these things you care about, I was told all of my life that I would become more and more of a person who didn't care about poor people when I got older. When you get older, you're not going to care about poor people. When you're not going to care about any of this, that is so fucking wrong, by the way. That was absolute fucking lie. But that was something that terrified me. 
was the idea that I would eventually just not give a fuck about others. That that maybe because that terrified me, I have worked hard at trying to care about others. A more accurate way to kind of like frame this as being Lovecrafting is thinking about walking down the sidewalk and accidentally stepping on a couple of ants out of a whole anthill versus if you're like a little kid and you see an anthill and you're like, oh, I'm going to bust out my magnifying glass and actively burn all of them, right? Now, I mean, in both cases, I think you have something sort of like actively damaging and horrifying to an ant. But in one case, you know, everyone's getting murdered. And in another case, it's just kind of like accidentally incidental to there being this other greater being in the environment that just takes no notice of your existence. Yeah, and I... I <laughs> I, I think Sharon all the same. Um, <laughs> I, I think Shara and Jim are. I think you guys are confusing two statements. Um, there certainly is a moral difference, right? Like, or, I'm sorry. There, you know, it, it can be a moral equivalence if you're apathetic and that leads to something negative down the line. But there is a, like an immediate difference between behaving in a way that's apathetic and behaving in a way that's distinctly evil. Those things are innately different. Um, but in certain contexts, apathy can lead to something immoral in the same way that acting evil can lead to something immoral. But it's so, it's vastly different in terms so of the outcome. I, 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 get, I get what you're saying, but I'm, I'm going to bring up two things. Well, one thing from the outside world and one thing from the film series. Okay. Uh, so in the outside world, MLK has talked about how when we are silent, when there is uh, bad things happening, that that is in and of itself uh, being a part of that evil. Even though you're not doing anything, that actually is an act in and of itself, and we can get into the trolley problem. And I'll, I know this has always been <laughs> every philosophy course I've ever taken has, has gone into this. But when it comes to this particular series, the issue of initially with the father figure was that he had been um, an alcoholic. He was trying to um, erase parts of himself by being completely drunk which led him to a place of rage and anger and, and, you know, it spiraled out of control. This idea of bottling yourself up, which is something that we talk about when it comes to toxic masculinity or even just being an American God, they tell you to smile over every fucking thing you go through in this country. And I don't get it. Um, but like when you're bottling up your actual true emotions and you're putting on this fake mask all the time and you're pretending that kind of, uh, hiding of yourself can actually erase yourself in some respects and can lead to rage, anger, um, having issues with, you know, connecting with others and so on and so forth. There can be a way for it to turn into something sinister. Now, it doesn't necessarily always turn into that, I guess. I have like that. Yeah. But, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, Just no, to say, okay. if, if, it, if it turns into something then, you know, if apathy turns into evil, then they're, then we're agreeing they're different. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, 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 so King, you know, you, you brought up King and I completely agree with that, but what that proves my point actually, because I think that that's, King is talking on the level of morality, right? Whereas I thought, and Jim, maybe this is my mistake. I thought Jim, uh, you were saying, so, so for example, King, I think would also see the difference between just simply not supporting African-Americans back in the sixties. And then he would see the difference between that and then like hanging them, like actively going out and doing evil, right? Like those are distinctly different things on a multiplicity of levels. But I think on the, the way that you're talking about them, Shayra, is to say that they're kind of both immoral. I mean, clearly the latter one is obviously evil and immoral, but so is indifference in a particular sort of context. So on the subject, on the issue of morality, 
there are certain contexts in which I would agree with you, apathy and indifference is immoral. I agree with that. But what I don't want to do is mistake the two things as being equivalent in every other aspect, maybe equivalent in terms of pushing the fat guy onto the track. Yeah, it's hierarchical, (laughs) I think, maybe. I mean, I I don't even want to say that, but it certainly feels hierarchically different. Active evil seems to be a a much more (laughs) distinctly bad thing than indifference, all things being equal. Maybe that's the key, all things being like Jim still seem like you have a problem with that. So I'm trying to figure out like, what's the problem with that? No, I don't. I I think that... uh... I think we've spent a lot of time on this one. Um, I think that the idea that what I was trying to draw a parallel to was the way Lovecraft looks at the world and the way King looks at the world. And it seems to me that there is some, that those Venn diagrams meet at more than just a point that in fact, those Venn diagrams are, are, are quite overlap quite a bit because they both seem to think of the world is inherently either, in your view, um, just simply apathetic, and in, I guess, King's view, in Stephen King's view, uh, since we've added another King to the conversation, um, <laughs> it's, uh, the, uh, the, that in Stephen King's view, that, that the world is about sort of active attempts to hurt others. Um, or, or about or about something like the self being uh, the bringer about of the of the evil, right? I, I I think that's the major difference. I from what I've read of Lovecraft, I don't get the sense that the world is evil. I, I don't get that sense in Lovecraft. I get the sense that the world is indifferent, and our incomprehensibility is the topic, and it's the problem, and it's the fear, and it's the horror in almost everything I read of of, of Lovecraft. Whereas in King, like human beings are kind of the f- fuck-ups of the world we bring about the evil and I so that's how i he yeah very character driven he is very yeah yeah i mean there's and and so jim jim addressed that right like he's not so the, yeah the, the writing differences are massive to- totally true didn't right. mean to go off on a tangent with that but even in terms of the distinct central metaphysics to use that word uh, of the worlds that they build i the think that, yeah <laughs> i think i, I I think Lovecraft has a has a um, a metaphysics of incomprehensibility as its central component to the horror, and I think King has very distinct sets of evil that come about through the human condition. Let's say maybe right. So sure. maybe they're connected in that sense. Maybe the human psychology, the human condition, may be the connection between King and Lovecraft. Whereas in Lovecraft. The incomprehensible, because I mean, I will say in Lovecraft, the incomprehensibility of the cosmos brings about a particular behavior from human beings, right? right? Mad- madness. Um, there, there's a whole host of things, right? So it might be that they both rely on particular facets of human psychology to bring about their stories. Right. But I, th- I think that may be where it ends. Like, I want to be very careful in bringing their metaphysics together because I, I mean, I see their metaphysics as distinct and very different. Um, you so see, I hope that makes sense. You see uh, their metaphysics as being sort of Lovecraft as almost an atheistic agnostic uh, metaphysics, whereas King almost has a kind of Christian morality that undergirds some of his work. Um, at least that's I, what I'm getting from. Yeah, what- I, I would. I carefully cashed out. I would agree with that. 
carefully yeah. cashed out, I would agree with that. Sure. I think there is an, it may be, maybe instead of atheistic, the right word would be a kind of agnosticism that there, I don't know. There's this Jesus I'm, I'm fucking flushed out of my mother and I'm in this world looking around with an apparatus that I barely know how to use. And I don't know how to make sense of anything. There's a beyondness to things in Lovecraft. Right. But that requires a distinct metaphysics, a distinct system of ethics uh, that, that is, that is almost question based that the horror is in what's, what, what if, what's out there, I don't understand. Whereas in King, it's, well, we kind of do understand. We understand human nature. It behaves a certain way. And here's what really bad people do. And here's how it produces a certain sort of world. And here, and the other thing with King is here's how to overcome it. That's one of the things right. I love about King that Lovecraft maybe didn't get, that didn't really focus on so well is King is also, here's the problem, but here's the solution to a lot of it too. You know, we went over earlier, some sense of community, like there's questions there and even how distinct King gets with that. But at least King makes it more, as I said earlier, hyper-focused on these issues. So I, I, this is the long way around basically saying I just want to be careful in connecting those two in terms of their metaphysics and in terms of anything like a normative ethics it, that comes out through their works. Can, can we revisit this when we do Colors Out of Space? Yeah, right. I was going to, oh, dude, you're the best, Shayra. I was totally going to say that. Like, that's a good way to come back into this. When we do Color Out of Space, um, we should come back to this conversation, remember it, put it in our notes. Jim is something to discuss. Like, is there anything in Color Out of Space that may not be the best one for it, but it certainly works? Color Out of Space is on our on our list in November. So, um, all right, let's, uh, let's move on. I think that uh, Dr. Sleep is like the perfect representation of a Stephen King novel for both good and bad like king king always takes the long way around to get to a plot point like there's never just a, a plot and part of that is because he doesn't have a plan he doesn't know what his he, he has no idea where his story is gonna end he does he just like follows some characters and says gee i hope they do something interesting as they i'm writing them and uh so does the film. Like, the film d takes the long way around to get to a plot point. So, for example, we don't actually need Snakebite Andy to be a pusher. Um, her only pusher thing is uh, actually, like, killing Billy. Um, and so this film spends extra time sort of setting up her character in order for that payoff. Oh, hold um, on, hold on. Can, we, can I interject there, or are you going to lose your point? Okay. Well, I mean, no. the, the point is, is this all works in a novel, but does it work in the film? And so go ahead and uh, if you want to dispute that, then go ahead. No, I think she is great as a, a mechanism. It doesn't necessarily have to be pusher, but it needed to be something unique. They needed to have, I think, distinct abilities because they made the point to show how they might construct the group and how their group could be constructed. Why do these people come together? Well, maybe each of them has some like unique type of thing that they do. And I think their interaction always also allowed Rose to talk about the time dilation that they experience where you know, like maybe a decade is something like a thousand years, I guess, is is kind of like what they come out to in terms of physical age. Um, so, no, I mean, I think yeah, uh, point taken that it didn't necessarily have to be somebody that can force somebody to do other things. It, it's but it needed to be, I think, something unique because that as a mechanism allows them to have more of a group dynamic that's more thoroughly fleshed out. Well, she is Andy is a a uh, opportunity for exposition dump. It's an opportunity for uh, Rose to tell the audience about their group and about all of those things. And it doesn't, 
I, I take your point that uh, it had to be something like Andy had to have some sort of special skill. Like they even talk about that in the movie theater. Like, I don't see what point, uh, you know, she's just luring these guys in here in order to to, you know, cut their face. And I don't know, like, I don't see what's special about her. And then, of course, they realize what's special about her. like I get that. Um, but nonetheless, there's still like her function within the plot is to kill Billy and provide the audience, provide an exposition dump. And she can serve both of those processes without necessarily being a pusher, but the scene, but the, but the, the film takes the long way around to tell us everything about that. And that's, that's fine. Like if it works for you, like that's your answer to my question. Yeah. I mean, like um, I, I really think it's, it's kind of nice because it serves multiple functions and allows character development for characters that are not her. Um, like the other way that it does that, for instance, I, this, maybe this counts as exhibition, but I mean, she serves as a really interesting benchmark for us as we're learning about Abra's and, uh, Danny's powers, because like we're seeing, okay, well, so here's this Andy girl. She has this level of power. They're kind of impressed with her. It's sort of like unique. Wow. That's really cool. Then she has this conflict with Rose and Rose is still a little bit stronger. Okay. So that gives us kind of like a basis for comparison. And then we see them start talking about Abra who is apparently impossibly powerful compared to Andy. And then we see the reaction to Danny, who is apparently a couple levels above that, presumably. And so without, I think that benchmark of having like a full understanding of their normal new initiate, then we couldn't really fully understand the abilities that either, um, either of our main protagonists have. Um, anyway, it's hopefully hopefully that's uh that actually kind of like jives but i i think it really worked for me but i'm also not really kind of like afraid of those <clears throat> sort of longer character studies and stuff like that that i mean it's really sort of like my thing so i think maybe it just connected with my taste a little bit better perhaps oh this is yeah this is the guy who gave us hagazusa like the <laughs> slowest burn in the history of burns man which by the way has grown on me quite a bit i've seen it like four times now uh, i'm more of a fan of it every time i watch it uh I, I i really am i i i start to see it i i really do um i also want to point out ben that you confused exposition with the word exhibition and that was mildly er- mildly erotic oh my did i really yeah oh, i gosh. did no no it was a freudian slip that's how we're gonna look at it it was quite hot just that's okay. It's okay. We I mean, forgive you. When we were thinking about exhibition dumps, though, I mean, what would that really go into? I I, that is different. Mind. Where I'm not talking about that. This is where I mute my mic. Exposition dumps. <laughs> like that's a. Uh, uh, yeah, those are two different. One is film theory, and the other is uh, is is what you would watch. Yeah. Later the other's night. live leak. Yeah. Don't this. Yeah. Quality content here on the Deadly Analysis podcast, <laughs> folks. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, let's talk about like reading, reading a Stephen King novel is a very Limbrinthian affair. And watching this movie in some cases was a very Limbrinthian affair. Like if you don't take my, if you don't take my snakebite Andy versus and what she serves to the plot um, example, then I think we can also talk about is it necessary for uh like danny to kill a to negligently the result of danny's negligence to kill somebody in order to push him to uh to get help um so perfectly moral discuss 
No, I'm just I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, I no, I agree with you, Jim. I think that everything in this movie is is slow and methodical. I mean, it's kind of an homage in some sense to King, right? Like it, it allows. I, so I'm trying to be positive about that aspect and say that it allows maybe for something like better world building, right? Makes mm-hmm. the viewers kind of dig their feet in a little bit. Like, all right, this is fun. I mean, I watched the uh, director's cut, which I, I I don't know how much longer it was in the normal cut, but it, this was like fucking like almost like Lord of the Rings fucking length, right? Um, right. But I, I, I'm like Ben, I kind of like that. I mean, I, I like a writer who sets up, so think of Snake by Dandy, who sets up a character for like one distinct purpose, um, but maybe like saves it for just the right moment down the line. I mean, I mean, Snake by Dandy is definitely a, a, a narrative dump, exposition, all of that. But um, I, if it's done the right way, it still doesn't kind of bother me. I, I will say that, let's say you take that, um, there, there's some kind of range, kind of like a, the the virtues or whatever it is, like vice versus virtue. And maybe there's like in the middle range is good, but then there's, I forget what the hell that is. I, I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so like there's probably a balance in there somewhere. I think Jim probably appreciates the, the lean plots and like taking out all of the useless stuff a lot. Um, but I think it's if you accidentally take that a little bit too far and you sort of don't really build up your payoff enough, that bothers me more than just taking a little bit of extra time and having some extra material. You know what I mean? Like we, if, we if have this debate. We had this. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. We had this yeah, debate with you two. Uh, von, von Trier. Fuck. What was it? Some a couple Von Trier movies ago. Oh, we had this debate between movies. you guys. Yeah, yeah. Jim and Ben had an epic debate on um, the house that Jack built. I think on this very right. topic. Anyway, just saying. If that interests you, the long way around versus this is this doesn't make sense. It's not the best way to do it. Trim the fat. That may be the conversation. That may be the podcast to watch. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we also had the the debate with Hagazusa where I was like, well, what is this fucking thing doing in here? And it took a while for... Uh, Why is there a it, snake in a movie about witchcraft? God, it's completely useless. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, when the snake me. never fucking comes up again. At least snake might <laughs> use their power more than once. Look, I, I'm still a little bit salty. I, I can't... I can't symbolism. Yeah, see? I'm it's glad I brought it up. Symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know what i i i get where you're coming from and i understand why you might like it but there were so many like traumatic events in english class with the teacher trying to be like now why were the curtains blue because they were fucking blue you stupid bitch they're just blue <laughs> shut up yeah <laughs> like stop overthinking it i well, love I to mean, overthink too- though i love to overthink so i think there's just certain moments where i'm like come on let's to be fair, I asked this as a question, like whether or not <laughs> that's true. You did ask it. As whether a or not this works as a film, that. I never said that it didn't work as a film. <laughs> Wait till we get to my reviews and I give this a spoiler alert for stars. Like yeah. I, I'm, I'm high on Doctor Sleep. Can I just say when it comes to the to to uh, Andy, uh, that scene when she tells him to kill himself as she's dying and cackling madly about how she just destroyed you know Dude, another right? person's life that is the i was i don't normally make this face when watching movies unless i'm watching antichrist you fucking asshole ben <laughs> but i did this thing where i'm like oh, no no don't yeah do it. Don't it was do fucked it. up don't do it. And i'm just like and you could see like the sadness in his eyes because he's like Oh my god, I'm killing myself and I can't control it. Oh no, 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 no. Ooh. Yeah, I got goosebumps right now. You know how I am about mind control and people like taking control and I don't I can't control my own mind. Oh blah blah. blah. Jessica Jones fear. season one. 
That's, yes, yes, no. David Tennant, the pusher. Not only that, no. not only that, uh, X-Files, the episode called Pusher, and yeah. Kitsangari, the sequel. Kitsangari, fucked up, same level, same sort of shit. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think Jessica Jones season one explored that that dynamic much in in as uh, in as much depth as we would want it to. Yeah, one thing I want to say before we wrap up is uh, I've been giving all the accolades oh, to this boy. movie and stuff. One of the things I don't like is um, there was a scene in this movie where um, Aaron McGregor, where Danny is helping one of the old men off into the nether realms, um, and you know he says something like, you know, it's like sleep. You know, remember that part? It's like, it's it's just like a long sleep. And I'm just sitting there going like, all right, this is my fear. This is the It Follows Fear. So Shayra, this is like a sub fear within a movie that has some of your sub fears. So I'm watching this going like, man, I mean, there's, I remember going, if I'm 95 years old and my wife's gone and I'm alone in an old folks home, I would want someone to come sit with me like that and go, even if I don't know them and go just to not die alone and to go, I'm, I'm going somewhere. I don't know where it is this is it, right? Like, I think there's nothingness. I want a hand to hold and I want to go. That's my biggest fear is not going that way. And he does that. But then I think there's a scene, it's either with the same guy or another guy where he says, we don't end. And I'm like, oh, well, fuck. All right, you ruined it, dude. You ruined it. We don't end. There's something after. Well, then I don't need to be scared. I would just push his face away and say, I don't need you then. If there's nothing else there, I mean, like if there's other things there, then like, I'm good. I'm just going into the net. I'm leveling up. Like I'm going to the next level up. I don't need you. But like he's valuable if there's nothing there. That bothered me. Like hearing, oh, we don't end. Don't worry about it. Just was like. Well, I mean, within the film's mythology, we don't. End. That's true. But I was like, dude, I yeah. don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. If you I'm dying, I don't want to hear that. So, but yeah. I, you know what? The thing that for me that was scary about that is he just went in like he's like, I'm fearing this. I, you know, I, I, I'm this is the end. I, I don't want. And he's like, you're fine. Don't fucking do some weird fucking shit to my mind to help me die, peace. Ah, uh, there's your and loss of control thing. Yeah. I cannot. Don't do that to me, please. Just tell me, yeah, I'm here for you. Hold my hand. I don't see. Need I want that though. I was, this is why we're different. Totally I want that. I'm using my mental telepathy <laughs> powers on you on your final <laughs> moment of death, Shara. But yes, now you told me not to do that. Don't I do it, guys. Hold my no, hand. You can use it on me. Jim, yeah, let's set up an appointment. I'll, I'll likely die before you, Jim. So when I do, I would like you to put your hand on my head and give me a memory of when, even if it's a false one, like when we did our best horror movie of all time, just pretend that it follows one, all of it, and just put that in my head, like touch the top of my head. It follows is the winner of all our best horror movies of all time when no, we did that not. debate. No, it did. As far as I'm concerned, I'm trying to tell myself it won. So I want that. This I want that tap so on my head. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know how we. You're younger than me. He, uh, I speak <laughs> more than you. See, like this is not going to happen. Um, all right. So let's talk about some of the filmmaking uh, of this film. Um, so a lot of the soundtrack is actually just like a heartbeat. Um, and I think that's a profoundly interesting way of sort of building tension of this slow 60 beats per minute heartbeat. 
uh, that that pervades most of the soundtrack, as well as uh, there are moments when he is literally just replaying the Shining soundtrack. Um, and that happens when the film is set in the Overlook Hotel or uses Danny's mother. And in that case, it's imitating Kubrick's soundtrack. It's imitating Kubrick's shots. We get these long tracking shots. We get these the quick zooms, these silhouettes, all of those things are just kind of out of the Kubrick uh, playbook. Otherwise, when it's uh, when it's just Ewan McGregor doing Danny Torrance things, it's uh, it's a Mike Flanagan film. Um, but there are select moments within this in which he uses Kubrick's visual language, and it's only when we're referring to or returning to, I should say, uh, Kubrick's the the world that Kubrick had set up. Structurally, this is a five act structure. Uh, the first act is the is essentially an epilogue to The Shining, and then Act Two is like the beginning of Doctor Sleep, and you can sort of pace out the acts throughout the rest of uh, the rest of the film. But there are five, and that kind of makes the film seem long or epic, depending upon your experience with it. You could consider this to be sort of an epic horror film if you really enjoyed it, or you could be like, holy shit this is long and uh, I think this sort of ties back to some of the things that we were talking about as as Stephen King sort of takes the long way around to get to every plot point um, so plot structure it's it's actually a five act structure which is uh, which is actually rather rare um, any other things about the filmmaking that you guys want to pull out and talk about what did you guys think of the Jack Nicholson uh, guy of the, of the dad the bartender guy I I, I... I'm curious about that because that's kind of an important character, right? That was the dad in Haunting of Hill House, right? That dude. I think so. The actor, yeah. 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 How, how um, do you think he did representing such an iconic character? That's really rough. Yeah, it was a little meh. It was a little <laughs> meh. How do you do? How do you? How do you do Jack Nicholson? It's as so Jack hard. Oh. I was like, what shoes to fill, motherfucker? And you're the bartender. You're both of the most interesting characters in this. Yeah. Project. It's it's the best scene in the movie, and yet he is awful in it. Like it, it would have been better if uh, if if it would have just been Jack. Um, okay, so? cool. Like the actual, so uh, I was gonna say like Jack Nicholson from today. Would that have been Jack? better? Oh, right, that would have been epic. See, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, like if if you really want that character to stand out, I think that's probably what you do. Um, if you wanted to just sort of like fade in and have Ewan McGregor really be the star and like show his transition, I think you'd probably want to do what they did because he yeah. definitely sort of fades into the background. He does. But how geeked would you have been to see D.H. Jack Nicholson? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, like visiting the thing, Jack Torrance. Right. I mean, that would be a nice uh, like bit of I don't I don't want to call it fan service or like an Easter egg, but it really would have. You know, a cameo at the very least. I don't know. Like, there's something about it that would have felt like it's not subtle enough for what they were doing in the story. And there's a lot of subtlety for for like all the crazy shit that's going on in this movie. My favorite part about it is the subtlety. And like, even when you see it in the filmmaking and in the cinematography, when they do uh, more complex shots, like you might expect from. Um, I don't know, like a Doctor Strange or like an Inception where you have like somebody floating over the the world above the clouds and like traveling in that way or like having somebody kind of 
uh, have their rooms spin around them or whatever it is. You know what I mean? It's like there's there's like really interesting sort of new age modern visual effects going on there, but they they used that stuff in in kind of like a, an understated sort of way. And I think they also did that with some of their characters and with some of the ways that they kind of like brought in the original Shining. Obviously, mm-hmm. we've talked about how we use like the same cinema, the same like frames and shots, but like obviously, unless that's something that you're really looking for, I don't think most people are going to notice that and be like, "Man, he did this exactly the way that Kubrick did," and that really sort of draws the connection. And like, it's probably something that feels the same, and that's really about all of the more you want that to be noticed, probably. Um, but to have Jack Nicholson show up, it would just have been like a, I don't know, like a like a zit in the middle of the the movie's face. Like, <laughs> I, you know, it, it just would have been too much. It would have been a little bit like overpowering. I think that yeah yeah go ahead Noah I had nothing important to add I was just gonna say I was just just gonna say I I would have paid really good money to have him pop out of the side and go this hotel needs an enema you know something like that (laughs) that'd have been great I think that there's that scene is so fucking good um and it does everything that it needs to do but I was when I watched the scene I am distracted by the differences between Jack Nicholson's Jack Torrance and this guy's Jack Torrance. And that, the distract... Now, mind you, the character is actually listed in the in the IMDb and I believe in the credits as the bartender. So he's not actually playing Jack Torrance, um, even though, I, like, all of us who've seen The Shining kind of think that that, that he is, I, I mean, clearly he is. Um, I think, though, that when, one of the things that that scene does so well is it explains the underlying hate that Jack Torrance had for the fact that he had a family. Um, the well, yeah. underlying antipathy that he had toward his family. And I would have... Nobody does anger as well as Jack Nicholson does. And I, I kind of wanted to see that that play out. I get what you're saying about it's is it in the middle of the movie. I get why it would be distracting. I understand all of those. And those are fair points. I'm not totally downplaying those things. But I think that you could... I, I think there's more to gain out of having Jack Nicholson than there is in, in recasting him. That said, sure. you, don't, you have to recast Shelley Duvall. Um, and you have to re, uh, recast Scatman Carruthers um, just because of where those, you know, uh, because of the outside the film situations associated with both of those those people. Uh, ben, if they would have done like a deep fake of Jack Nicholson, do you think that would have been cool? Like I saw a deep fake of Jim Carrey and all of and like a bunch of scenes from The Shining. Have you ever seen that? It's on YouTube, mm-hmm. and someone deep fakes uh, deep fakes Jim Carrey, and it's and it's awesome. Like I I was thinking, man, that would have been so good if they would have like just had a VFX artist touch it up. And it was 2019; they could have done it. You know, they could have had like that, could have had his face in there. I would have liked that. Would it, would that have sullied it for you? Would that have fucked it up for you? Um, well, that's, that's an interesting question because obviously what makes Jack Nicholson isn't just his face. Like it's really all the, uh, the little things that he does to really communicate, uh, like as Jim said, like that he, that he kind of like in, in the original shining, obviously at the end, we sort of see it come out in his sort of full fledged demon self. But, uh, like most of the movie, I think you get this sort of frustration that he has with the situation. And that's, that's the really cool thing that Jack Nicholson is able to do really well. And so maybe if you had him and then they made him look younger, but then again, you're still recasting Jack Nicholson. You know, I'm not sure. Right. I mean, it's, it's definitely not just about the face because I, I think the character was fine. I mean, he looked like Jack Nicholson enough 
And he sort of kind of like, it, it seemed like maybe a little bit of a, like a cheesy impression that he was doing, but it was kind of like similar enough that you got the point. Um, but still, yeah, I mean, if, if you're really going to bring in like Jack Nicholson to do that or bring in someone like Jack Nicholson, that character is going to be heavily emphasized. And that's really the issue for me is like how much you emphasize that character and why you would choose to do that in that scene. I got it. So let's make this Lovecraftian. You don't see his face. You just hear his voice. As the bartender. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah. Be pretty badass if you you just get a shot that's like behind him, right? Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, That would be interesting. They could have even done the face like they did uh, to Abra when she was, uh, you know, when she set the trap on Rose. You know, like the blank uh, face thing. Yeah, why not? (laughs) With the purple hair, she looks like she's in the X-Men or something. Yeah. Yeah. And a little Abra (laughs) storm. That that just showed that she really is just an anime nerd. I love that she's like setting a trap for this horrible person. And she's still like, you know what? I'm cosplaying here, bitch. (laughs) Like, it's so cute. Like, I just love her so much. It was cute, horrifying, and heavily baller all at once. Yeah, all at the same time. Yeah. It's time for our final thoughts. Uh, So, Noah, do you want to kick us off and tell us what you thought of Dr. Sleep? Yeah, I mean, I love this movie. Um, As we all agreed at the very beginning of this podcast, it's better than The Shining. Glad we all agreed, uh, especially Jim. And uh, no, I, uh, yeah, I, so so there's something to be said for the instance of trauma, i.e. The Shining, and what follows from and how you work through and the after effects of said trauma which is Dr. Sleep. Like I, I, I agree with Shayra that doc, that, that these two movies should be a thing together that one, it, it, you know, you know, they kind of exist together and one explores the trauma they're in, 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 in the first film. Um, Dr. Sleep is great. Um, it has, uh, it, it's well-written. I love Mike Flanagan. A lot of what he does has been fantastic. Haunting of Hell House is, is one of the, one of the best things I've ever seen. Um, this is a guy who explores familial trauma and this is a movie distinctly about familial trauma and it's sort it's it's in the realm of films i would couch as like hereditary the invitation high high ranking films for me films that explore trauma deep trauma <clears throat> who we are in relation to the trauma the sins of our past sins of our family i mean these are these are these are deeply horrifying concepts if cash out right um and uh so i i dug the acting i thought it was a little long um i you know there were there were some aspects of this that i i, I felt could have been done a little better but overall this was a movie that i think did justice to both like it's hard to do justice to both kubrick's work and king's work and i felt like this was a nice middle ground between those two things um you, that's hard to do man like i think there's some there's some credit in there that that ups the score for me so i would give this movie a 4.5 out of 5 overall i think there's some room i think that as a familial horror film it didn't scare me as much as i would like um and this may have been a movie where that should have happened where in falling in the footsteps of your family i got that same i mean these are fears that i have as a person and um i got them there was more of a sense of viscerality in some of the other films that we've explored that i felt hit me harder and made me score the movie higher because they scared me more cinematically though this movie's fantastic and i'm just gonna say like we need more rose the hat in more films that's all i'm saying is i'd like to see rose the hat in more movies because holy lord in heaven my god rose the hat i'm I'm gonna my last words for this podcast is rose the hat Rose the hat. Um, all right. So this is, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, Noah. Um, I actually had a lot of trouble writing show notes for this uh, for this thing because 
For me, it was... I thought that this was a fantastic plot point to plot point movie um, that I had trouble teasing out more resonant themes from. I felt like the first thing that I said in the in this podcast, um, that Doctor Sleep's central thesis is who plays who pays for the sins of the father, the children, and that that was like I, that was the discussion point that I could just be like this is what the movie's about. And then the podcast would have been like 10 minutes long where we all go, yeah, that's the central thesis. Yeah, that's the central thesis. Cool. Four stars. Um, so that was, it was actually, so if there were moments when Noah was like, no, Jim, you're you're reading into this. You're completely wrong. Um, go fuck yourself. I I admit I might have been reaching a little bit because I was like, I, it's a fine plot to plot film and it does the things that it wants to do well and it's Stephen King and the end. Like that was sort of my reaction to, to the film. I think that it serves, I think you're absolutely right, Noah, that it serves as a, a, a sequel to both the book and the film, the, the shining and the shining, which I consider to be two vastly different, uh, uh, art pieces of art. Um, so I, I think it's, it does, it does do that middle. It does sort of thread that needle um the performances are all excellent um obviously Ewan McGregor and uh and Noah's new crush Rebecca Ferguson of course that's uh obviously they are fantastic but I also want to throw out uh throw out some shout outs to uh Kylie Kieran uh who plays Abra and Cliff Curtis who plays uh Billy um, they are they are also really quite good. I think uh, Kylie Kieran is is um, is is especially um, an interesting interesting talent, and I think she carries this film. Um, I think she carries her part well. Um, overall, I give it four stars. I think it is is well done. It's competently made. It's a th- it's got scares and thrills, but whether or not it raises to like these these transcendent themes that we can really chew on and 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 provide like week long stones in our shoes. Uh, I don't think that I don't think that Doctor Sleep does it for me. Um, I feel like it it can almost be reduced to the central thesis that we talked about at the beginning of this film. Um, okay, Ben, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, like, I I don't think that I've really disagreed too much with I think people's general impression of the movie and the scoring, right? I mean, I'm also going to give it a really high score because I just frankly love the shit out of it. It's it's so enjoyable. Um, I, uh, you know, for the reasons that I've already kind of laid out, I really think it makes the, the offering in terms of the original shining better, just because it's able to fill in some of the plot points and the information that we didn't necessarily get. It interweaves quite nicely. Um, all the stuff that everyone's already said, really, I mean, like (laughs) to your point, like what more can you really draw out of it in terms of the higher philosophical stuff that we tend to gravitate toward in this podcast? You know, I'm, I'm not sure that it's there. I mean, I really like the hopefulness and of course, like we can dig into the stuff that we did about like the morality, like how would you class? it sort of like try and understand it but what it's really sort of showing us in the mirror that it holds up i think is is a fairly straightforward message 
albeit like a powerful one because you know perhaps the world isn't kind of like entirely sort of nihilistically meaningless but we can kind of like make our own meaning by helping each other and sort of striving for a better future it's it's pretty cool um it doesn't have to be complicated it's a really nice message uh wrapped in an even better movie um and yeah i mean i really am on the side that i, I do think this is better than the original work um and for that reason um i, I think i'm going to give it a 4.5 so yep So uh, this is one of those, you know, really great Stephen King type films where you have a bunch of interesting ass adults, sure. But then there's these amazing children that really, in a way, are the ones leading adults, explaining to them how the world really works, helping them remember what it is to be a kid and what it is to actually exist in a world where you have hope and can actually fight what is bad about the world. Um, you see this in It, and what's interesting between It, the newer It's, and, um, you know, Dr. Sleep, I feel like with the first It, I was just kind of like, ugh, I don't know, I don't know if this is working for me. Then I see the second It, and I'm like, okay, actually, yes, this is a lot to get, it has to be watched together. This is, and I can't wait, by the way, until they, they are going to actually put the two movies together as one film with extra stuff to it so that's going to be I, i'm definitely going to be purchasing that when it comes out but um you're talking about it not the shining Doctor Sleep. now with the shining um i actually liked the shining a lot but i feel like this movie really added something to it because it, it helps me understand the world is a lot less of oh no everything's scary because that was the trauma aspect it's now explaining it as how the world works and as a overthinker at times i love i love it when you explain the world to me okay give me the rules how does this work where does this go um and then helping danny just get through because honestly one of the things that always bothered me about the shining is when it's over it's like that's not a happy ending (laughs) oh they escaped no that's that kid's gonna be going through some shit so revisiting like where danny was i don't know there's some kind of sense of i'm glad i didn't die before I could see that movie because I'm glad to see that that kid managed to get through it. And the other thing I really like about this movie, I feel like this film did what Bong Joon-ho did to his two Oscars. It got Stephen King and, and Stanley Kubrick to make kiss and make up, but he got his two Oscars to kiss. And that's what I would do with my two Oscars if I got two Oscars. Um, but I love that he got them to kind of kiss and like make it up. It almost feels like this movie is what we needed to heal as a podcast from our disagreement on The Shining. I feel like this is where we can all meet together and have hope for the future and, you know, really just work together and keep shining on, you know? So I'm so happy this film came around and I give it four stars. (laughs) I give it four stars as well. And I have been ignoring all the shining hate from Noah and Ben just because uh, it's not worth my time. Uh, there, there, there might, there mites really just, uh, it's like uh, ticks, uh, their, their shining hate is, is, is not worth, uh, any sort of recognition. Um, all right. So let's talk about, let's talk about next week. Next week is going to be a kind of an interesting week. We're doing something different. Um, we are doing something a little bit odd, uh, something outside of perhaps our comfort zones, but nonetheless, I think it's going to be a really productive and interesting podcast. Um, our next movie is going to be Annie Hall. 
Now I know you are going to, you are thinking to yourself, wait a second, this is a horror podcast. I will argue, and in fact, we will argue that Annie Hall is, and among other rom-coms is secretly a horror movie. Um, and we'll be talking about some of those issues as it relates to Annie Hall. So I hope you enjoy uh, I, I hope you enjoy that. And I hope you join us two weeks from now when we have Annie Hall. Uh, as our as our main film that we talk about, uh, so and be sure to uh, like, share, and subscribe both this video and all of the other ones that we've recommended over the course of uh, this podcast. And of course, uh, give blow a little kiss to uh, to Black Philip uh, that Noah is holding in, up to his screen. Um, we will see you all in two weeks when we talk about Annie Hall. Uh,